0: Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptivity DX, because the journey's worth it everyone we're back with another episode of fertility docs uncensored i'm one of your hosts dr abby evelyn from nashville fertility center and today i am joined by my sweet and i'm gonna well i won't say sexy you know but i think you guys are sexy uh, co sassy. sassy sassy and sexy how's that co-host and friends dr susan hudson from texas fertility center hello and Dr. Carrie Benient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas.
1: Hey. How are you guys doing?
0: It's been a little while since we podcasted. I've missed you guys. It's I good.
1: Hope- it's good. Yeah. For our listeners, we we tend to do these kind of in bunches. We'll do a few <laughs> weeks in a row. And and then sometimes life gets a little busy and crazy because that's you know the way life is. So it's it's probably been about three weeks since we podcasted. I know, I know. So I hear you're up to something fun and new, a new project, Carrie what are you
2: doing? So my wedding anniversary is coming up and um, it's 13. So it's not like, it's just a random year. And so I decided um, my husband and I both have a really big empty wall in our bedroom. And, um, and so I was like, okay, what can I put in there? And I wanted to do something that was kind of sculptural. And so I found all these really cool websites where they take strips of wood and yeah. they cut them and stain them to different uh cut them to different lengths stain them different yeah. or paint them and they make make it them flush. into the shape of a sound wave oh cool and so, sound wave a sound wave and so you can look up the sound wave patterns of whatever songs ah. you want and so i was like oh great i'll order one of these and, but I needed like a six foot length and it's, I don't know, $2,000 or something like that. I'm like, hmm, I'm not going to do that. I can make that. So I made it. And so I, what? the song, the first song that we danced to was um, At Last by uh, Etta James. And so I printed out the sound wave for it, which you can find everything on the internet. And then I just finished this morning. Staining and putting in the screws and the backs for the hanger and all that, so
0: I can give it to my husband tomorrow for our anniversary.
1: That is so cool.
0: That is really cool. But Carrie, I must say, you're making me feel really guilty because on October the 25th, I will have been married to 25 years. So, <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs> which is great. I think, I think we'll make it because we're just a few weeks away. But um, <laughs> but we we kind of uh, we we've talked about our gifts, but we may we're going to kind of do some big things, but we're probably going to let each other kind of pick. Are the gifts out, but that's really thoughtful. That is really cool. I like that gift. That is a great idea. I'm excited. I need to and think my, of something thoughtful as well too, though, other than just a gift.
2: <laughs> my next project is we have a, a friend who has an old terracotta fountain. And so I'm gonna, I don't like the plain terracotta look. So I'm like, all right, let me find some really bright colors to paint it and then seal it and then do that. So I'm excited about that too.
0: Well, cool. Susan, <laughs> so what are you up to? Are you doing any exciting projects?
1: So I'm I'm actually doing one of my MBA classes right now. So
0: <laughs> that's your project. I,
1: that that's my project. I'm writing a paper.
0: <laughs> oh that's not so, very fun.
1: But my class is over after Monday evening. And so then I'll have I do like generally seven weeks on, seven weeks off. Yeah. So I I am surviving until Monday night and then oh, wow. starting Tuesday, I can have my little bit. It, it's amazing how much life you get back when you're not taking a class and working oh, and yeah, wearing not all your about other it. little hats. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why I love my master's class because I can do it for seven weeks and, you know, things kind of get messy and chaotic and then I can get everything nice and, and where it needs to be. And so... I will. I will have to think about my next project. Right now, I'm still a little bit in survival mode, but I'll. I'll get there. So my
0: project now. I've. I've started uh, out of necessity. This table that my grandmother had that was really pretty. Just the top was getting kind of ugly, and I'd kind of refurbished it a little bit, but it just really needed to be like completely redone. So I like looked at videos on YouTube, and I've completely stripped it down, and I've sanded it down, and. I'm staining it, it looks really good. And and so I'm like, now it's inspired me to like go find some old, other, other old pieces of furniture that don't look so great. Cause it's really amazing with just a little bit of work, just by getting rid of the old stuff and staining it again, it looks like a brand new table. It's really amazing. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of my new newest hobby that I've gotten into.
2: (laughs) It's very satisfying to do. I took some of my dad's old furniture and did that and put new put new fun knobs on the dresser drawers and
0: no, it's yeah. It just it makes it look like a new piece of furniture. It's really cool. Yeah, it's beautiful. Have either of you ever done any upholstery? I've never done that before. I thought, well, just on just on room chairs, but nothing, nothing dramatic. Yes.
1: That's what I need to do. But I need to redo like the seats, like the cushions and the seats.
0: Oh, I haven't redone the cushion part. Mm. Do you want have a staple gun? It doesn't sound like it'd be that difficult, like, though. I think
1: I need a power gun, some good fabric, and then figure out what yeah. I actually want the seat cushions to be made out of.
0: Yeah, I think you could do it pretty easily. I, yeah. Just watch a YouTube video. I bet you could figure it out.
1: It's always <laughs> on YouTube, just like we are. <laughs> Everything's
0: like on YouTube, are. yeah.
2: <laughs> and, and nobody should definitely go look at our YouTube for today because I don't know that I want the shimmy that I did at the very beginning when you were calling us sexy and sassy documented anywhere. Maybe, maybe we should cut that out of the YouTube on this episode. Oh, Carrie, yeah, you're, always, you're always
0: sexy and sassy. We're uncensored. Yeah, that's right. Mm, so fair. Susan tells us we have lots and lots and lots of questions. So. Um, we kind of looked and sort of tried to pick a topic that seemed to be a theme with several of the questions. So we're going to talk about recurrent pregnancy loss today. That will be the theme of our questions. So Susan, what you got for us?
1: All right. So this first one is from one of our friends up north in Canada. Um, She's 36 and having secondary infertility and recurrent pregnancy loss for 12 months. Husband is 42 and they have a healthy three-year-old. They've had two miscarriages around seven weeks and then two chemical pregnancies. Family doctor did general blood work, um, checking hormone levels after the second loss. Apparently everything was in the normal range, then went to the provincial fertility clinic following the third loss as required by the health system. Um, They don't have the karyotype Um, yet, and they're in a long list for the HSG in the next few months. Um, Right now, running two plans in parallel. They're continuing... Um, to try while setting up files at their fertility clinic. Um, so this is a, a little bit different experience than what yeah. we have in the US. So Million, this is great. Yeah. Um, I'd like to hear our opinion uh, at 36. Is this likely a numbers issue or is there a reasonable hope of conceiving naturally if they keep on trying? What seems to be the success rate of someone at my age who's having frequent losses? I'm open to IVF or other treatment, but not covered by healthcare insurance. So they would have to completely finance it. Yeah. Um, mm. With their first child, it took them essentially one month to conceive and everything was completely fine. Um, child was born at 35 weeks and no other complications. And How she's old Thomas, is that child? Three. 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 Okay. She said, your podcast has been a lifeline for me lately. What a wonderful thing you do, providing us such information in the fertility world, which feels very inconclusive most of the time. So Aww, thank you. Thank you really, for writing in. That's into really us. sweet. Yeah. So, nice. so she conceived the first time probably around... Um, thirty-one
0: or 33, seven, 33,
2: 32. yeah, thirty-two-ish, yeah. yeah, thirty-two-ish. Um, yeah. So I don't I mean, think there's... thirty-six in and of itself. I mean, she doesn't give us any of her specific numbers, and certainly you can have really decreased ovarian reserve and poor egg quality at thirty-six. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't really know that for her. And and hopefully she said her hormone levels were good. So hopefully that means that's been checked and that's not necessarily an issue. The one of the biggest markers of future success is prior success. And mm-hmm. so she's got one one small human being, and that's that is a good setup for having another one. Even though it sounds like the road getting there has been quite turbulent.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know what I tell my patients is that you know the data really supports that most people with recurrent pregnancy loss are eventually going to be successful, but we can't yeah. tell you if that's going to be the next pregnancy or five pregnancies down the line. And a lot of this decision is where your heart meets your head, because um, mm-hmm. I I've had a handful of people who just. Kept on going on their own and eventually were pregnant. Um, yeah, that's that takes a lot of emotional stamina
0: and physical and, stamina too, and
1: physical stamina and, and potentially
0: marital counseling as well. Yeah, yeah seriously, it's a lot. So, so,
1: you know, that that is possible, um, especially in a system where you can't get things done quickly. Yeah, you know? that's really was,
0: frustrating. That's the layer in Canada that I just really hadn't thought about, but yeah, that's really frustrating, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, ideally. You know, I think if one thing I would say, if you have another miscarriage again, which hopefully won't happen, but if it's far enough along where you have a DNC, it'd be nice to test the products of conception because, you know, if we knew about the the genetics of at least the two that you got to seven weeks on, if we knew that those were abnormal, you know, that would make us think more that it's a genetic issue, didn't really make it any easier to solve the problem, but it would suggest that IVF may be beneficial, you know, if you do produce... You know, one out of five embryos that are genetically normal. If you do IVF and we can pick the normal one, that gives you a great chance of getting pregnant. Um, and statistically, you've had four losses. And so statistically, at least two of them would probably be genetically abnormal just because you're human. So, um, you know, but unfortunately in a situation where you can't really check your karyotype anytime soon and. Right now, you don't have coverage for IVF. It's a little challenging to kind of figure out what the next steps are. But I'm like Susan, studies say that about 70% of people that have had a baby before. If you keep trying, it's going to happen again. But just it's a lot of emotional and physical things that you have to go through. And sometimes it just gets overwhelming to do that.
1: One additional thing um, to mention to our listeners that if you've had a miscarriage and you did have a DNC and it was done at like a hospital type system... And if they still have the sample, there are certain companies who can potentially take that sample and retrospectively go do your karyotype. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that provides a a good source of information, maybe something you can be working on while you're waiting for all this other stuff to happen. Mm -hmm. Yes. Good thought. All right. So our next question is really just on um, kind of something that can lead to pregnancy loss. Um, hi there. I have recently become obsessed with the podcast and have binge listened to so many episodes during the span of one week. <laughs> that Thank seems you. weird that
0: somebody would want to binge listen to us. That seems like very odd to me. We appreciate <laughs> it. We appreciate but we it. we appreciate
1: it. It's great. Absolutely. I am a 32-year-old female who has been trying to conceive for a year, suffered a miscarriage at 10 weeks after being diagnosed with a subchorionic hematoma at five weeks and five days, despite signs that it was clearing up and the baby developing normally during all the early ultrasounds. I've had a lot of trouble getting useful information on subchorionic, subchorionic hemorrhages and was wondering if you could shed any light on them and if there's anything that might put me at greater risk of another. I am particularly interested because my husband and I are considering IVF and have read that subchorionic hemorrhages are more common in IVF patients. Thanks. That's a great question.
0: That is mm-hmm. a great question. I don't think anybody's ever asked that question before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So,
2: subchorionic hemorrhages uh, are just really a fancy way of saying that there is a bleed area in between the pregnancy and the uterine wall. And sometimes those bleed areas are tiny and sometimes they're quite large. And how you look at them very much depends on how big the surrounding baby and gestational sac is. Because if you happen to have a baby that's further along, 10, 12 weeks most subchorionic hemorrhages are going to look pretty small in comparison, but when you're only at the six-week or five-week mark, then they look ginormous and they are a source of immense fear and uh, anxiety among patients. And so um, that's really just what a subchorionic is. And it is very common that we see them in IVF pregnancies. Part of the reason for that though is we know right when you got pregnant and we're looking because we are just like you, we are OCD about watching this pregnancy. and so. There are very few spontaneously conceived pregnancies where you are going to have an ultrasound right at five weeks and five days, and we do it on absolutely everybody who comes through our doors because we are OCD about making sure that that pregnancy is in the right spot. And so we're checking at these early, you know, six week, six and a half week points. And so if there's one there, we're going to see it. And I I have very vivid memories of being a fellow and. Um, for the, the first month or two that I was there and seeing a subchorionic and giving the big, you're going to miscarry speech. And then reality kind of spanked me on that one when they had the nerve to go on and deliver perfectly healthy babies <laughs> without any drama. Um, and so my, my counseling over the years has really backed off to say, mm-hmm. look, don't, don't worry until you need to worry. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's true, true
0: and unrelated. You have a subchorionic, you have a miscarriage, but they're not at all related. Well, and it's, it's hard to know, too, if it's the cause or the effect. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. if it's not destined to be a healthy pregnancy, it doesn't implant well and it starts to tear, tear away sooner. So it's kind of one of those things like, it's is it the cause or is it the effect? And, and you know, there are some things, I mean, specifically, there's some things like blood thinners that can make you bleed more, sometimes in people with recurrent pregnancy loss. So it's kind of a catch-22 because sometimes we want to put people on blood thinners to get better blood flow to the baby, but then that can increase the risk as the pregnancy starts to implant and grow into the wall of the uterus it may hit a blood vessel and have some bleeding. And and again, I, I would echo what Carrie says. I would say, and I don't have a, a paper that says this, but I'd say probably 90%, if not more people that have subcornic hemorrhages, maybe even 95%, turns out they do fine. So I'm not so sure that that was the reason why you had the miscarriage. Um, I mean, it's kind of one of those things we may never know what the reason was, but I, I'm not so sure that that was really the reason why you had the miscarriage.
1: As somebody who's had a subchorionic hemorrhage, and I can remember like it was yesterday and my daughter is about to turn 12. I can, for our listeners, it can be like one of the scariest things you ever experience in your life. Mm-hmm. Like literally you, you know, either you're sitting there or doing whatever or in the bathroom. And all of a sudden there is just like blood mm-hmm. pouring out and you're just mm-hmm. like, Oh my freaking goodness. And it's scary. And the the way that I kind of explain it is oftentimes, essentially like a little blood vessel gets nicked as things are growing and Mm -hmm. developing and expanding. And and it is crazy scary. And what happens is you have like this huge rush of blood and then over usually a couple of hours, it starts to taper off. And then red stuff goes to brown stuff. And then brown stuff can hang around for a really, really long time. And Mm -hmm. so when you go see your doctor, often they'll be like, I'm not worried about brown stuff. That's old stuff. And then also kind of knowing like, where is the subchorionic hemorrhage? I, I feel better about a subchorionic hemorrhage south of the baby than north of the baby. But I mean, it, it's one of those things that as Carrie and Abby said, most of the time things go on to be completely normal. It does slightly increase your risk of preeclampsia or high blood pressure issues in your pregnancy. um, But not so much that you're definitely going to get it. It's just one of those statistically increased risks. So one other thing I forgot to say too, you probably want to back
0: off on vitamin E and CoQ10 and um, DHA. Those are some things that can make you bleed just a little bit. So you may want to, or I'm sorry, omega fatty acids. You want to back off on those things because they can also make you bleed a little bit more.
1: But stay on your folic acid. Stay on Mm -hmm. your folic acid. That's right. General
0: prenatal for sure.
1: Absolutely. All right. Our next one. Hello. I am 27. Husband is 29. Stopped birth control patch in December, 2020 and conceived right away in January, 2021. Had a chemical pregnancy in February and did not have another period until June. First time I've had irregular periods in my life. Conceived in June after my period came again and had another early miscarriage in July. I changed doctors and decided to hold off trying until I speak to a new doctor. They tested me for a lot of things like thyroid, lupus, estrogen, glucose. Everything was in the normal range. My doctors, OB-GYN and primary care also ruled out PCOS. We were trying again in January, but all tests have been negative. I don't know what is wrong nor how to proceed. What additional testing can we do? Thank you and God bless.
0: I'd say karyotop for sure. That's the one thing that they didn't sound like they tested for. And, you know, if you were to have, and it's really rare, only about two to 4% of people have it. But if you and your husband had, you or your husband had a balanced translocation where a piece of one chromosome switches places with a piece of another chromosome um, really early in your development, Then that could also be carried into your eggs and or or to his sperm, depending on who carries that. And about two thirds of the gametes, either the eggs or the sperm, would be genetically abnormal and would result in a miscarriage. And it's really unlikely, but if you find that, that's kind of the the thing that you know that you have to treat. So I think it's hard to know kind of what the other tests were, but I think that's the one thing that jumps out at me for sure. You probably also want to have some sort of uterine evaluation too. Those were biochemical pregnancies, so most likely they can see your uterus pretty well, but. Still to have a complete workup, I want to make sure that your uterus looks okay. Um, and it looks like that you had anticoagulant or lupus anticoagulant. I don't know if you had an antibodies. in antibody. So it would be the other thing that, that you didn't mention.
1: I would also make sure you get your prolactin checked. Um, it can make you have irregular periods and in- can increase risk of miscarriage. So um, that would be something else that might have not been done.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm assuming just because most of our fertility patients are very much on top of this, but no smoking, no tobacco use, no other substances. Um, you know, nobody knows how much alcohol it takes to cause, cause a problem. And while they're not necessarily associated as directly with miscarriages, um, sometimes the patterns that go along with them, You know, if when you drink, you happen to have a cigarette or two, sometimes those things can cause more issues. So
1: usually not a huge problem in our population, but worth saying. Absolutely. All right. Our next one. Hi there. I'm a 38 year old female who has recurrent pregnancy loss three at six to eight weeks in one chemical with one successful pregnancy. Husband is 42. His work was workup was relatively unremarkable and her showed an antral follicle count of 11 AMH of 0.47. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Progesterone 0.4 FSH 11.3 LH 8.7 estradiol 12 TSH 2.09 um, going as high as 2.9 with recently positive pregnancy tests. Genetic testing was unremarkable for us both. And I was placed on progesterone um, suppositories, um, 100 milligrams QHS. Doc initially suggested Clomid with Ovidryl trigger, which we were going to do the same week we had the positive test. Given the antral follicle count and AMH, would you suggest trying Clomid or would IVF be better given um, PGTA option? Is IVF even reasonable reasonable given the AFC and AMH levels? Thanks. So, I mean, there is some evidence of diminished ovarian reserve with your FSH and um, AMH AMH levels, but your antral follicle count is technically what I would consider normal. I consider Mm -hmm. 10 or above normal. Yeah. Um, And so if you're wanting to do IVF so that you can have the PGT testing and that type of thing, I'd say go for it. Um, Mm -hmm. Time is not your friend. And, you know, doing Clomid and inseminations are going to potentially maybe help you get pregnant faster, but it's probably not addressing something that's causing pregnancy loss. And so... That I, I think if IVF is something within your means and something you're comfortable with, it, it's a reasonable choice at 38 with some diminished ovarian reserve.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I would say. I agree. Time is not your friend. So you, you want to pick the best egg. You may You may get pregnant, but it may not be the best egg. And you want to pick the best egg, best embryo, and give yourself the best chance.
2: Definitely worthwhile if you're thinking about having more than one kid, too. Um, Not all at once. We don't yeah. want to be twins, but if you want to expand your family even beyond this one additional child, I would definitely do IVF. Bank as many of those embryos as you can.
1: And that's definitely something I'm seeing more and more is people banking Mm -hmm. embryos for future Mm -hmm. use. And I think that's great. I think that's great because, you know, the younger you are when you create those embryos, the better chance we have of successful pregnancy, less risk of miscarriage, less risk of birth defect, et cetera.
0: The one thing from an insurance standpoint about banking eggs versus embryos is some insurers will not allow you to bank embryos. They'll allow you to bank eggs. But once you have an embryo, they make you transfer it. So just something to check on, even if you have coverage for it.
1: Good. Thanks. All right. So our next one, thank you for being amazing humans. Literally obsessed with your podcast in my darkest hours. First cycle, September 21, 15 eggs retrieved, nine fertilized, seven embryos, four AAs, six BBs, transferred fresh, pregnant first go. Heartbeat perfect six weeks, two days later, severe food poisoning, gastroenteritis, no heartbeat at seven weeks. DNC, no karyotype by hospital. February 2022, second transfer from frozen. Heartbeat failed at eight weeks. Mesoprostol duplicated 13 and 15. After listening to your podcast, insisted on another cycle and PGT. Same drugs for second cycle, only six eggs. So canceled retrieval, panicking, 40 and unexplained infertility, um, 57 kilos. (laughs) Textbook menstrual cycles with no children tried six months naturally. Would you suggest anything different? Love from Australia. Oh, we're getting some of oh, our wow. wild people. Ooh, wow. So she got six eggs in her
0: third? or they were expecting six eggs? Sounds like they're expecting six and they canceled her.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, I wouldn't have canceled for six eggs in a four-year-old. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't Would it awesome. either. But
2: if it's covered by the state, sometimes mandated. there's different mandated of you can only go to retrieval if you have XYZ. Now, I don't know that, but I have seen that in some of my international patients a little bit more than I would in in mm-hmm. patients going through treatments in the US just because in the US there's like we can we can push even if there's only going to be one egg and that's not necessarily true in other countries
1: I'm a little confused though because we had seven embryos from her first retrieval they transferred a fresh and then they transferred a frozen we should and still have happened? five more yeah. embryos like I would say take those five embryos you have, thaw them, biopsy, see what you got.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, she didn't mention that. So she should, yeah, she had a, she did really well in that September 2021 20, cycle.
1: I'm curious if Australia has rules about thawing and rebiopsying. biopsying hmm. I think the, there's definitely
2: rules about... Biopsying and getting gender information. I know that I have seen that in my Australian patients. Mm-hmm. They like they will come if there's a specific reason for a specific desired gender. Like let's say there's an X-linked trait, things mm-hmm. like that. They haven't been able to biopsy. So it may be that there's there's more at play here in doing PGT um based in Australia. So
0: that maybe
2: part of the reason why not just US thawing. And
1: let us thaw
0: and yeah. So we could thaw and biopsy them and they, and and at that stage, the embryos in our practice, I know do really well. I mean, we rarely have an embryo that doesn't do well to thaw and re-biopsy. And so uh-huh. I, that's, I'm like, Susan, if you have extra embryos, that would be, if you can do that, that would be the way to go for sure. It's
1: something to consider.
0: Absolutely.
2: It's, it's something to consider, but financially, frankly, it's probably better for her to start over and make new embryos because the shipping cost to get them to the United States, mm. finding a clinic that's willing to accept outside embryos that are shipped internationally, getting the right thawing protocols. Like you can do all of this. I have done all of this before. Yeah. It's particularly for, It takes a
1: lot of legwork, but some yeah, of it depends yeah. on what your benefit is. I mean, I would expect in a yeah. mandated system that there's going to be limits, especially as she's in her 40s. Yeah. Um. But I would go for a more aggressive protocol. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, stimulate the wazoo out of your little ovaries. Yeah. I don't. I
2: wouldn't cancel for just six. I would. Mm-hmm. I would keep going. But that's that's the difference in systems. That's I
1: the think. call of your doctor. Yeah. Yeah. All right. One or two more. Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's do it. I am a 41 year old, AMH 1.6, and have a three and a half year old via natural conception. No issues whatsoever. In fact, I got pregnant three times in a row at 38 when trying for baby number two. All three ended in miscarriage. Second had a heartbeat and I chose to do a DNC to test the tissue, which came back abnormal. Mm. I have seen an RE over a year and have done four IVF egg retrievals. I finally got a normal embryo on my third cycle. We have been trying to do an FET with the embryo for months. Two cycles were canceled, first because docs saw fluid Filled pockets, so recommended MRI to rule out adenomyosis. MRI came back normal, no adeno or endo. I had scar tissue removed before starting my IVF cycle, so that's no longer an issue. My lining won't thicken, trying stems and omnitrope.
0: So we don't know what her lining was during any of her retrievals. Mm -mm. That'd be helpful to know that, though, because then you know what your potential is. The other thing I would say, too, she kind of alluded to this, but I assume her fallopian tubes are okay, or if they weren't, they were. The scar tissue around the tubes is removed because that's the other thing. If you have fluid in your lining, we worry that maybe your tubes are obstructed in some way. So if that yeah, had not been done, then make sure they look at your tubes.
2: I don't want to go in and take a look directly. Yeah, I need a hysteroscopy.
1: Yeah, hysteroscopy, endometrial biopsy. Let's let's make sure there's no chronic endometritis. Nothing else mm-hmm. structurally that's going on. No, change um, products anywhere that may not be emitting hormones. You had a DNC. There could be adhesions. Yeah
0: but her only but her only transfer was canceled because of fluid though right yeah but she had dnc's previously yeah
1: two, they they've had two cycles she's had two two cycles canceled for lining issues lining
2: issues the other thing is that you can remove uh fluid from the lining right before transfer mm-hmm. if it's if it is a benign cause like if you've ruled out all of the infection all of the other things um, there was a study that i saw that showed that the Fluid didn't necessarily have a worse outcome yeah um it makes all of us anxious <laughs> when you have to work so hard to get an embryo to put it in a fluid filled lining does she only have
0: one she only has one embryo though right and she only has one embryo yeah. so yeah, that wouldn't, wouldn't be my first choice I and mean, we do that yeah. and sometimes, I mean, i've had success with that but my pick would be if you had fluid in that that visit or that time i would right. cancel and so start a new cycle i've
1: also seen people with fluid and when you start like you have fluid when you have just them just on the Estradiol and then, and then you start, you start the, the progesterone, progesterone. Yeah, and the fluid that's right. goes away. Yeah. So in people with fluid, that's what I often do is I don't usually mm-hmm. scan after I, I start progesterone, except for you know the day of the embryo transfer. But those people I'll bring back a day or two before embryo transfer after they've started the progesterone. And nine times out of 10, the fluid's gone.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, also going easier on the estrogen too during the STEM. Those are ones where sometimes a natural cycle can be really helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually that's a good that would be a good suggestion. Like maybe even do an FSH or Femara, some either oral medicine or injectable yeah. medicine to build the lining. That's a yeah. uh, we've we've had really the most success, I think. When I've had patients that have really had linings that are really hard to stimulate, it's almost like patients do better with their own endogenous hormones, their own endogenous mm-hmm. FSH and estrogen. So it might be worth doing that if you've not done that yet, do an FSH cycle and see if you can, your own estrogen will stimulate your lining better than the estrogen that your doctor's given you.
1: Yeah. In our practice, they, uh, some of the providers do letrozole cycles similarly, and they have good response that way. So good ideas. All right, let's do one more. Okay. I I am a 38 year old naturally conceived and gave birth to a baby when I was 34. Since then, I had three miscarriages around eight to 10 weeks, then referred to an RE. I've gone through three retrieval cycles, which resulted in four euploid embryos. I've gone through three FETs, two of which were programmed and one was natural with a trigger. I had a good trilaminar lining and eight to nine millimeter thickness, but none of the transfers worked, not even a chemical. What should should I and my RE try next? I have one normal embryo left, AMH of 0.58, thyroid and D are under control, saline ultrasound images are clean, RPL panel showed low positive IgG level, but not enough to be diagnosed with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, prednisone and antibiotics were included in all three FETs. Thank you. So this is on the edge. This is, this is kind of out there where we kind of all are scratching our head going,
0: what do we do? <laughs> I know what I would do. I know I'll what I would do too. <laughs> but I don't know what Carrie would do is what I don't know. So one thing I would do though is, and I've started doing this more and I've actually found more positives. um, I would check, do potentially a couple of biopsies. One, I'm leaning more more now toward BCL-6 as my first choice. It's an inflammatory marker in the uterus and it tends to be linked with endometriosis. And so I've had some reasonably good success lately, just out of the blue with several people that we've checked for that. We've treated them accordingly. And then they turned out and had a positive pregnancy test. The other biopsy, the ERA biopsy, is sort of going the way a little bit of the dinosaur. I'm a little less apt to use it now. Um, but it's it looks at how much progesterone you absorb or how readily you absorb progesterone. And the idea is if you don't absorb progesterone as quickly as someone else, you may need more than someone else or you may need less. So it's sort of our version of personalized medicine So, you know, it makes sense. But unfortunately, the data is really not supporting that it really makes a difference. Um, And because I think there's probably a wider window of implantation than maybe we realized before. So a little bit of variation by two or three hours probably doesn't make that big of a difference. So I'm tending to do that less. I let patients know about it, but and I'll do whatever patient wants, but I'm not really I'm not a huge fan of it.
1: I'm still a fan of the ERA. But I, would def- <laughs> I, 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 I still, I have people like this person that I couldn't get pregnant and then I'd do an ERA and I made the change and that's the only thing I changed, but I would definitely do a hysteroscopy. Um, good data support that even if you've had a normal saline ultrasound, that after this many transfers, there's a reasonable chance there could actually be pathology inside of the uterus or could still be something going on there. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Trying to see if there's anything else. Making sure you don't have any chronic endometritis. Which she's I think been treated very antibiotics. She said,
2: like,
0: all three transfers.
1: Yeah, um, but there's, but she's probably only gotten short courses of short antibiotics. Courses, and that's not going to treat. And that's not enough. Chronic endometritis. So, anything else you would do, Carrie? I
2: would consider a long Lupron protocol just to totally shut everything down first. Um, you know, slightly different protocol because it sounds like the other two have been. Reasonable, programmed, and then a third that was a natural natural cycle with a trigger. Um, so, yeah, I think checking for endometritis as well as looking at uh, potentially a long Lupron protocol to really shut everything down. And that's that's similar to what Abby is doing and looking at the BCL six. Mm-hmm. But um, I think with the positive antibody, that's just really borderline. I don't know that it's really helpful to start anything until you have a positive pregnancy test because there's really not a whole lot of a blood supply that's established prior to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, if you had gotten a little further, I would have considered just giving the Lovenox based on the, the loose positive. Um, the other thing is if you're more than 12 weeks out, you can retest that antibody and just see, see if it's positive or negative now and let that nudge you in whatever direction you're going to go in. But I, I still probably wouldn't start that until you had a positive test, which is where we're struggling to get to right now.
0: Yeah. All right, right. well, this has been a really good episode. So to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave a review in Apple Podcast. We'd really love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So be sure to follow and subscribe and stay updated on all things infertility. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com dot com to
2: submit specific, submit specific <laughs> questions that you have about infertility. All questions, <laughs> <laughs> all uh, all questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment. So let us know. We want to know what questions you have and what episodes you might want to hear.
1: As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll see y'all soon. Bye. 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 This
2: podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.